Okay, we're here today to continue the discussion about learning and following God's will that's grounded in the idea that came up here in the Macedonian vision. And we've covered some of this, but I want to reset the stage. We've got a few new folks here. And so let me read the text. Acts 16, 9, and 10. Acts 16, 9, and 10 says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, we covered this last week, but it's necessary for the ongoing discussion to review this because it's a very important topic. And the question that people ask is that, should I expect my own Macedonian vision to show up uh, when I have questions about what to do? And then there are a lot of nuances to it. Is it just the important things? where I get a Macedonian vision or a still small voice or an angel or something to tell me what to do? Or is it for everything? Or is there such a thing as Christian liberty? And I've written about this. I've also researched it and studied it. It was a huge thing when I was a new Christian in the 70s. Everybody wanted to know God's special purpose and will that's unique to them that was discovered, discoverable through some supernatural means. And so that was a lot of discussion. And I ended up, a guy wrote a book that I thought was the best, and I have it with me. And then I ended up writing an article. But let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather in your name. Thank you that you care about us and that you do get us to the right place at the right time. And as we're asking and to know how we know your will and how we know what you want us to do. We ask that we'd understand the issues and understand what the scripture is telling us so that we can be faithful and obedient by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, I covered this last week and we pointed out that they had been hindered by the Holy Spirit from going elsewhere. And then this vision happened and they concluded that rather than where they wanted to go in Northern Asia Minor, they would have to cross the sea to get over to Macedonia based on this vision. But it was after discussion and then coming to a conclusion. So it wasn't like just mindlessly, I had a dream or I had a night vision, so I'm going to go do it. I said we concluded. Notice we, meaning Luke was there with Paul when this happened. So he was an eyewitness. Help is in the imperative. And, and I covered this last week, but I'm, we're going over it again. The word in the Greek means to run to a cry. Help us. So here you have a vision of somebody in Macedonia that wants the gospel. And so they conclude, let's go do it. So Luke was there. Now I showed you this last week, but here it is again. Here um, is where they were 
at, and they were trying to go into Bithynia, but were hindered from going there. So instead, they decided to go over to Macedonia. And you can see that's quite a journey, and including sea travel. And as I said last week, the Jews hated the sea, were afraid of the sea, and the last thing they ever wanted to do was die at sea. That could happen to a lot of people. And so this was a big deal if you're going to go to sea. And I mentioned last week also that um, in Revelation, when it says there's no more sea, Americans go, what? That's awful. Jews go, great, praise God, no demons. Because the sea was where the devil, the demons were. Remember there was a beast that came up out of the sea in Revelation? Remember in Luke, the gathering, the demons in the gathering went into pigs, which were unclean, and went into the sea. The sea is evil. Americans go build their houses right up over the sea. So get your mind into the Jewish scriptures so you can understand how they're thinking. Okay? And you notice in Acts later, a shipwreck, which is like the worst case scenario, is part of the narrative of Acts. So we covered that last week. And then we were talking about this. So I had covered before Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed are for us and for our children. So we created these uh, theological categories, and the Bible creates the categories of the things revealed and the secret things. I pointed out that the secret, the word secret means occult. So spiritual information that's not revealed in Scripture is occult and is forbidden by God. What's not forbidden is what's revealed by God as what's truth about the world we live in, the spiritual world, and everything else is revealed. And it's not forbidden to use our rational minds to have occupations, to study, to learn, and so on. General, we call that general revelation. Now, in regard to what's revealed, we sometimes call that God's revealed will in theology, or sometimes we call it God's moral will. Those are synonymous theologically. Why? Well, there's a lot of things revealed that you would say, well, aren't particularly moral. Okay. But here's why those are overlapping terms. If God reveals something to be true and we refuse to believe it, it's immoral to refuse to believe God whatever it is that he's revealed, even if it isn't directly about what we would call morals. So when we call it God's moral will, it's also the things revealed belong to us and our children and children forever and ever. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Let me read the text. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, parenthetically, just as you actually do walk, 
in the parentheses that you still excel all, excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now notice that under the new covenant, God's revealed will under the old covenant that came through Moses, talked about that last week, under the new covenant is Jesus and his apostles. Notice here, commandments we gave you, we, the apostles, gave you, the church, by the authority of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Everyone see the categories? And so it's important to realize that that's God's authority and authoritative will for the church is the teaching of Christ and his apostles. Now, some people like to play fast and loose with this and mess around with the categories and, and thereby create problems. For example, the social gospel, Tony Campalo, and then Brian McLaren, and now I'm reading a book by a guy from England who's a new iteration of emergent, only they don't call themselves that now. And this guy's book I'm reading, Jessica told me it was a popular book, so I'm reading it. I'm reading so many heresy books, I have to take a break and study the truth. But this guy is claiming that the, bio, the, that the books of Moses are mythology, that they weren't written by Moses, that they were written in the, during the Babylonian captivity, and that the Jews just took pagan mythology and turned it into a monotheistic version, and that's what we got. That's what this guy is claiming. And this is just liberalism. But it's being sold to a whole new generation that doesn't know any better. And so there was no real Adam and Eve. Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. There's a lot of mythology that we can learn moral lessons from. If you're young and you're hearing that sort of stuff from these young guys that are so popular, this is a guy from England, his name Pete what, Jessica? Hughes? Pete somebody. Pastor Pete, the liberal. <laughs> but he's got these young people, oh, we got to just have a socially relevant message. People can't believe literally the things that the Bible says. So Moses didn't really write the Pentateuch. And of course, the thing that they like to emphasize is the red letters. Have you heard that one? Yeah. I know Eric's talked about that. Well, the red letters, but they only like some of the red letters. They like the ones that don't mention hell. Okay, so they come up with trying to make the world a better place to live in and uh, be nice and do good, but they don't distinguish between the church and the world. And they don't distinguish between the kingdom of God and the world. So they think making the world a better place to live in is how you create the kingdom of God. And then you can make the world a better place to live in by using the red letters and then sort of assuaging and massaging Moses and gleaning what you want out of it. 
So if you say, well, I didn't believe there was a literal Adam who rebelled against God and that the penalty of sin is death and Adam rebelled against God and the whole human race was plunged into death, they say, well, you're just uh, guilty of hyper-literalism and uh, so on and so forth. So I'll write about that eventually. I'm doing my research. But notice the claim of the New Testament itself. By the way, I was thinking when I was reading this guy's book, and I haven't finished it, it's about 500 pages, and you can only handle so much heresy at one time before you get sick of it. But the guy says Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, and it was uh, uh, done by Babylonian captivity people, and it was basically turning paganism into monotheism. So I'm thinking, well, then Jesus is deceived too. You know why? Because Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. So they want the red letters, but they think D Jesus was deceived. So if Jesus said, Moses wrote of me, are you going to blame me because I actually believe the red letters? It's a scam. It's liberalism wanting to deceive and seduce young people in the name of Christianity to create their one world socialist system. Don't believe it. So that's what's going on. So what we have here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2 is a claim by the Apostle Paul that what the apostles taught, we is given by the authority of the Lord Jesus so we can actually know what God's will is. Okay? So Jesus actually taught that there's an eternal hell. They don't tell you that. Paul taught that. John taught that. That's the one thing they deny. They think the world's evolving into a better future with no future judgment. So there's our categories. The things revealed, God's moral will, general revelation, which is implied in Genesis 3, where Adam had to learn how to farm, because he wasn't in paradise anymore, and he had to know the difference between food and thistles. I suppose, I don't, no offense to anybody who likes to eat thistles. But when, uh, when God said that thorns will grow, that was not good. Where's Ron? Ron? Oh, he's back there. Buck, he was showing me buckthorn that was taken over out in Minnetonka. Nasty stuff. Buckthorn. And they're having all kinds of trouble with it because it's taken over the woods. So we live in a fallen world. You can't just graze like the animals and assume everything's edible. There's poison out there. And you've got to use your rational mind to distinguish what's food and what's non-food. Does that make sense? Okay, so we have general revelation. We have God's moral will. But here's the kicker, and I want to get to today. There's this claim that was very popular in evangelicalism, but I think this guy was so lucid in his arguments, it kind of knocked it down, is that there's this other will of God beyond Scripture that is tailored directly to the person and it has to be discovered by revelation directly from God. And that's the will of God everybody's looking for 
because the assumption is that if you find that, you're going to find success in all your endeavors. Now, let's go on here. Now, we want to talk about providence because you have to have biblical categories. Providence is a biblical doctrine, dear saints. I know it's under attack, and I know that people like Greg Boyd, who I debated in person, are mocking this, and he's calling those of us who believe these verses literally fearful cowards who are retreating to Romans 8.28. Heard him do that in the radio. Oh, he, Romans 8.28. I know, I'm tired of hearing that. All these stupid Christians, they were Romans 8.28. And then he just mocks it. Greg Boyd, he's pastor out in the eastern part of the Twin Cities. Assuming he's still in the ministry. And I, I thought, why is he mocking Romans 8.28 on, on the radio? Well, let me read it to you. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I wondered about that for a long time. Why would you claim to be a Bible-believing Christian and mock Romans 8.28? Well, I found out why when I did my research on emergent. Boyd is his own person. He's not, I wouldn't call him emergent. He created his own theology. When I debated him, he had written 14 books, and he had two PhDs. And he's smart enough to create his own theology to suit his own personal concerns. So he's, he's not emergent. He doesn't need Tony Campolo or uh, who's, who predates emergent or, or uh, Brian McLaren or Tony Jones or whatever. He's capable of being his own person. But here's the kicker about Romans 8.28. Two things I want us to look at here. In blue, I have all things. we got to decide about that. And in red, according, those are called according to his purpose. And that would include those who love God and the, the call. Who, who is that about? Which is to whom the good is applied. The first question we have to ask is, does Paul here intend tapanta, the all, all things to be literal or not? Does Paul, in fact, mean some things? Well, I've written about this and preached about it and did extensive work in degree looking up various passages about all things. And we can conclude that in certain contexts, it doesn't necessarily have to be literal. But in the big, broad passages that are talking about God's eternal purpose, we have to conclude that all things is literal. The Bible is not teaching us that there is a whole part of the universe that's outside of God's control, and it's going off in its own maverick, rogue way with an uncertain outcome. If all things are not literal, then God is in control of all things, and God can't can't assure the outcome, no matter what. And that's, that's what Greg Boyd was teaching with his open theism. God is lacking foreknowledge, so he can't be in control of all things. So Boyd claimed. Now the emergent is claiming all things are evolving 
through the Hegelian synthesis process into a paradise future for all people. There'll be no future judgment, the cosmos will not be judged, and there'll be no hell, and it's all going to turn out good. So Boyd is equivocating on all things. He says it's not literal. Emergent is equivocating on good for those who love God. Do you see the two kinds of equivocation? One is saying all things isn't literal. And the other is the good applies to everybody even if they hate God. Are you following me? I hope so. This is very, very important. You might say, well, that's an awful lot of theology. Yeah, if you want to come, there's a switch. Turn the mic on and ask your question. I'll turn you up. There you go. Yeah, a few years ago, things weren't going so hot for me. I was going through a divorce, and things were going really bad. And I was talking to my sister on the phone. I said, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And I said, things aren't going so good for me. And she goes, Rich, read the next verse. Romans 8.29, um, that we're conformed to the image of His Son. Exactly. And I that, have space on the other. Good point. Oh, boy. That hit me like a ton of bricks. And that's when I started learning the gospel around that time and changed my life. God bless you, brother. Thank you. Good. That's a good point. The good is defined as being conformed to the image of Christ. <laughs> Not everything's going to be favorable. It doesn't mean it all works out. Am I off? Yeah, I'm still on. It all works out. Every time I buy a stock, it always goes up and never goes down. Every time I buy a car, it turns into be the best car ever, and it's never a lemon. And every time I buy a house, nothing ever goes bad. That's not what the good is defined as. And so they equivocate on all things, and call it some things, they equivocate on good and divorce it from being conformed to the image of Christ. They equivocate on those who love God and turn it into universalism. And so emergent, open theism, liberalism, equivocate on everything here, and they make the verse essentially useless. But what did Paul mean? The meaning is determined by the author, not by the reader. It's another thing that Pastor Pete out in Britain equivocates on. He doesn't think the author determines the meaning. It's sort of a group effort between the author of the text and the reader, and you end up with some kind of meaning. But in fact, the author determines the meaning, and the author is the Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible. Now, what is it? what a comfort is it? Providence covers all things. Why? How does that comfort the Christian? There isn't going to be some chunk of metal that lands in the gears of my life and knocks it off the rails. It's outside of God's control. Whatever God uses and whatever God allows, he uses for the benefit of his people to conform us to the image of Christ. And so we can take all things literally. And 
In the eternal counsel of God, this does happen. Now, on the scene, remember I gave you categories? On the scene, beyond the scene, and behind the scene? We're not in the council chamber of God. And we don't know how that all works out. But we know that it does. And we can have hope and confidence and freedom. And what I want to show you is that the true doctrine of the Bible, as mocked by the liberals, gives us very true and real Christian liberty. You don't gain liberty by believing lies. Jesus said you should know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Lies don't set you free. The truth does. Now let's look at all things in another famous passage, Ephesians 1.11, which we covered when I was preaching, as I'm preaching through Ephesians. We've also obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. The context, which is the baraka, or eulogetos, if you'd say it in Greek, that is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And it's blessing God for his mighty works, his character, his virtues, his promises, and it's saying, praise God, all glory to him for the mighty deeds he's done. And here it's telling us that part of the mighty deeds of God is working all things after the counsel of his will. And how would it be glorifying God or praising God if Greg Boyd's right and say, well, God works some things and the ones he doesn't work are going to let the devil come in and destroy our life. We don't know how to deal with it. It's not comforting because the devil knows what's going on in the spirit world. We're only designed to function in the world that God put us in, believing his promises about the rest. So we have to conclude from the context of Ephesians 1, if you just read 3 through 14, no honest reader can say, Paul doesn't mean this to be comprehensive. So I have a statement I wrote in my notes to uh, share with you. I'm quoting me. I, I'm probably a bad source. I don't know. <laughs> but I want to make sure I got it right, okay? Uh, these promises, I'm saying, apply to all believers, not just certain elite ones with, with special status. They are not dependent on gaining secret information beyond Scripture. All things, I'm saying, includes our own decisions freely made within our Christian liberty. There is no danger that we will, quote, miss God's will, unquote, because of lacking some secret technique for hearing from God. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose are the same people, believers. Those who have been predestined according to his purpose are the same group, believers. Notice Ephesians 1.11. We have obtained an inheritance. How many of you know that if God ordained in his eternal counsel that believers have an inheritance, they shall have their inheritance? 
because God cannot lie and God cannot fail. That's how we're going to be conformed to the image of God. Back to my quote. We, believers, all things I'm saying in these passages is literal. God's providence will not come off the rails for some because of evil conspirators, be they human or spiritual, who secretly secretly thwart our well-being. My last statement, we are safe. I don't believe any honest reader of what Paul is telling us by the inspiration of the Spirit would conclude that Paul is trying to tell us we're not safe unless we gain secret information. That Satan's going to come and derail God's plan because we just goofed. Now, that doesn't mean we are, Paul said we're not ignorant of his devices. Satan is real, his temptations are real, and his attacks are real. But we know what his devices are, and that is to attack the gospel and to attack the truth of the scriptures and attack all the once-for-alls. Almost every false group rejects once-for-all and puts it all on us. Certain elite ones are going to find God's divine purpose, and the rest of us are just the rabble Christians. We can't expect anything good to happen in our lives. We're not good enough. I hate elitism, i got to be honest. Somebody's going has to help the ordinary Christians, and I use that word somewhat ironically because I wrote an article, being an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing. Okay? It is extraordinary. But you, whoever you are, ordinary Christian, are in the center of God's will if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. He loves you. He protects you. He's cared about, he cares about you, and he's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. And as I continue to preach through Ephesians, I'll cover the spiritual warfare part. But I'll show you in that passage, Ephesians, whole chapter, Ephesians 6, that Satan doesn't have the power to derail the believer who's trusting God's promises. What is he going to do? He's going to lie and tell us you can't trust God. Yes. Go ahead and speak. I'll repeat. Yeah, so one of the things I've been learning about uh, Christian authors, God, you know, he does control everything, but he doesn't say that our actions don't matter. So it's like, you know, if he commands us to, to seek him and to pray, like the Israelites, for instance, you know, they were supposed to be praying, and they're trying to obey him. For one example, would be when they when they were deceived with moldy bread and old shoes, and their and their enemies came. And you can see the Israelites were saying, you know, well, how can we know that you're from far away? You know, how can we? How can we? And they're trying to obey God. Because God said, I'm going to destroy every single person in this before you. And he said, and they're trying to obey God. And I, but one of the things they did wrong was they didn't see God in prayer. And, and you know, I, I, I've done this before. I've been trying to obey God. I just kind of figure. So are you saying that if we don't have secret information, we're going to be defeated and we don't even know any better? So uh, what, what God said after that was he said, I would like you to be deceived, 
by that by those people. And he said the reason was is because you didn't seek me in prayer. So sometimes we have to learn what God wants us to do. He showed them how to pray. He told them what to do. Okay. But because they didn't do it. Can I tell you what you're getting wrong, brother? Okay. You're taking the Israelites and making them a monolithic unit. Whereas a matter of fact, when it came to the nation of Israel, they were a covenant nation. Most of the people were not believers. Just because they were Israelite didn't mean they actually had faith in God and trusted his promises. And so many of them didn't know God at all. And so that's what made them think like the nations around them. But when there was a faithful few, a remnant, they would listen to God and his prophets, and things would go differently. Now, here's the distinction. I'm just trying to help, okay? When you get into the new covenant, okay, that's why the analogies from Israel don't always work. You're not part of this because you were born in a Christian family. You're not part of this because you go to a church building. You're not part of this because your parents are Christian. You're not part of it because you live in America, and America is a Christian nation. Does anybody believe that? No. No. That didn't take long. Okay. So you're part of it by being born of God. So those who are born of God and are filled with the Spirit are the very ones who are seeking God. And if you give the truth to the people born of God, they will grow, they will flourish, and they will actually do these things. I just want to encourage you, Brother Eric. God is not going to get disgusted with you because you didn't seek him well enough. Just trust him. That's what he commands us to do. He says, if you don't rely on my strength, you strive your So what makes you think you're not? Well, I'm just saying those things that, as a believer, we have to be doing. Otherwise, what God says is there is consequences. Okay, so I'm not denying that. If we rebel against God's moral will, he will discipline his own children. Absolutely. But we got to define who God's children are. And uh, there's a lot of people who love God, who do want to serve God. I saw it. I lived in a commune for five years. We were fasting every week for 24 hours. We were constantly, but there were people that just, no matter what we did, no matter how much we sacrificed, no matter how much we gave away, there were people that were going, oh, my sin, my sin, God's mad at me, I don't know what to do. They never got away from it. You can never be pious enough to convince yourself God's happy with you. So I'm saying, dear brother, believe the promises of God. You'll seek him. You want to know. God knows how to get our attention. I'll tell you what works for me, landing in the hospital. Okay, God, you're right, Lee. I can't do anything. Have everybody pray for me. I don't know what to do. I can't get out of here. People pray. God gets all the glory. Yes, Jessica. Well, I think prayer is also a part of providence. It's something that he's called us to do. It's a means of grace. We seek him through prayer. We seek him through his Amen. word. And that's what he uses to accomplish his purposes. But we have the privilege of being a part of it. Yes. We have a privilege of praying and being part of it by the means of grace. I agree. And so the true Christian doesn't say, 
I prayed and it didn't work, so I'm going to try something else. I prayed and it didn't work, therefore the answer was no. <laughs> yeah, or right we're going to give God the glory no matter what. I was thinking of the verse that says in the Old Testament, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Yeah. So there is discipline. I'm not denying it. But I want to get to the matter of Christian liberty while we got time. To, every once in a while, i got to get through like three slides in a Sunday school. <laughs> now let's look at some categories of people. This is important. Because this is where the world is getting it wrong right now. The world is trying to tell us that what's important about you are things that you can't control. And if you have certain things that are qualities, then you're a victim and you get victim status. And if you have other qualities, then you're a victimizer and you must be punished. So they're dividing people up in really unbiblical categories. And the world is looking around saying, look at all the bad, all the evil, therefore there must be a bunch of evil victimizers that we need to punish, whoever they might be considered. I'm saying this. The Bible sees three categories, and I'll tell you why. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, 32. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks, or to the church of God. Now in this statement, Greeks there is a, what is that called? Synodoki? Uh, metonymy? If you don't know that I don't matter if I got it right or not. It's when a part designates the whole. Eric was talking about that. He gave it, I, I thought of an illustration. Somebody drives up in a new car and somebody says to him, oh, I see you got new wheels. We understand it to mean the whole car. Now, it could be you had an old car and you put new wheels on your old car. But if you have a whole brand new car and they call it new wheels, they mean new car. So Greeks is a figure of speech standing for all the Gentiles. Okay, even though the Greeks are a subset. So it means all the Gentiles. Now, why are the Jews separated from the Gentiles? because of descendancy from Abraham. All the way back into Genesis 12, God promised Abram, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, that in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. In his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So the Jewish Messiah is a blessing to all of the families of the earth, who representative people who come to faith in Messiah. The Jews are a separate category, but that doesn't save them. They still have to have faith in Messiah to be saved. And there's future promises, as we see in Romans 11. So in Galatians, for example, there is a problem between the Jews and the Greeks. Paul's trumpet wants to solve that. We don't want to offend. But notice that the church of God is a separate category. Give no offense to Jews nor Greeks nor the church of God. So Paul is taking all of the people in the world that are unsaved and saying they're Jews or Greeks. 
which means Gentiles. Then there's another third category, the Church of God, that's comprised of Jews and Greeks who know Jesus. It's the one new man, Ephesians 2.15, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Okay? So, God gives us liberty in matters that are not God's revealed moral law. And liberty is an important category. God does give humans the freedom to make choices that are constrained within God's moral law. Within God's moral law, there's all kinds of choices you can still make. You can decide what to plant in your garden if you have one. You can decide whether to fertilize your lawn or let it go natural. Our neighbors like natural. That's why all the creepy Charlie attacks my lawn. <laughs> you can decide whether to eat vegetables or meat. You can decide what kind of car to buy or whether to use public transportation. But in the use of our liberty, we don't want to purposely offend anybody. Because the greater good of the gospel is why we're still here. Yes, Brian. Of those three groups, I find it interesting that God says that he will only the Jews, those who bless the Jews, he will bless. So there's, he, he separates them out again from those three. Because there are still future promises to Abraham that haven't yet been fulfilled. And that will happen during the millennium. Now, I wrote an article about this, so I brought some show and tell. Kids can't go to school. That can't mean, doesn't mean I can't do show and tell. My <laughs> show and tell is issue 75, God's Will and Christian Liberty. I wrote this in 2003, so when I read it, I feel like I'm reading something new because I can't. 2003 is kind of distant. But it, it turned out to be a pretty good article. I, I marked it up as I'm, we're going to do radio on it. And I'm claiming the Bible contains everything God's chosen to reveal to us. And I start by citing Deuteronomy 8, 20, no, Deuteronomy 29, 29. And then I talk about four important categories. Number one, God's revealed will. Number two, God's providential will, which is whatever actually happens. Number three, Christian liberty. Number four, wisdom. Not everything within our liberty is wise. Okay? An old friend of mine used to say, it's not a sin to be stupid. <laughs> we all are. I mean, honestly, all of us. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why? You can take your kid's college fund and put it into penny stocks and lose it all. Well, there's an answer to that. Kids don't go to college. That could be good nowadays, yeah. That's providence. At least they won't turn into socialists. Well, whatever the case, why is it like that? I want to talk about Christian liberty. And so go 
CACMinistry.org in, in issue 75. Now, I have some statements in here, again, that I wanted to share here in Sunday School. Now, we're talking about Paul's Macedonian vision. Here's what was wrong <coughs> with the traditional... <laughs> talk too loud. The traditional view that this... It will be more show and tell. Gary Friesen, 1980, this is 2004 version, decision-making in the will of God. When I was a new Christian, I thought if I was really spiritual, God would tell me every single thing to do from A to Z. And then the outcome would be good every time. And so Paul's Macedonian vision became what we should expect as the norm. Gary Friesen wrote a brilliant book in 1980 that so refuted that that I thought it became a, just a really a great watershed book. Now, why is that an issue? Let me explain why it's an issue. Ironically, and I'm not claiming to know motives, this view that we're supposed to get special revelation about just ordinary decisions and that the people that got more of these were more spiritual than ordinary Christians, in fact, took away all Christian liberty. And it doesn't even accord with what life was like in the garden before the fall. I don't remember if I had that in my article. But notice that before the fall, they could freely eat of any tree in the garden, except for the one that was forbidden by God's moral law, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam named the animals. Did God come along and say, no, you got that one wrong? No, Adam, when you named that octopus, you weren't listening to me. No, he didn't, he didn't say that. Adam was free to name the animals. He was free to eat. Sin has brought the negative consequences. But what we're claiming is that when God redeems us and gives us his moral law, and we stay within this realm of not offending Jew nor Greek nor the church of God, we have significant liberty about a whole bunch of things in life and that is part of being human to make decisions, to try things, to raise our kids, to buy a house if that's what we decide to do, or to rent if that's what we decide to do, or to stay here, or to move out, or to do this, or to do that. That's within our liberty. And the teaching I got in the 70s from people like Watchman Nee, which we're doing radio about, if you really took it seriously, the most pious people were the ones that had no liberty at all. That's right. Because they heard the voice of God and every single step was directed, go here, don't go here, take a right, don't take a left, do this, do this, do that. And the people that tried that the hardest had the worst problems. I tried it just on the big things, and I wasn't, I just did my best. But when I found out, this is a great book, Decision Making the Will of God. When I found out that God gave me liberty to make decisions, and if the outcome was undesirable, 
it doesn't prove I was sinning against God. And it was so hard for me to get that thinking out of my mind from the old way that I remember talking that way even in the late 80s, which was eight years after I first read that book and I started getting away from Watchman Nee and all the pietism. I remember one time I decided I really like 1977 to 79 Buick Sabres. I must have. I had like three of them. So I bought one from somewhere that wasn't rusty. That was the key thing. No rust. We're in Minnesota. And Bert Sisler, if you remember him, God bless him. He's with Jesus now. Uh, he helped me. And we were rebuilding the engine. And we did this and we did that. We pulled the engine out. We re we had it all uh, mic'd and, you know, bored out and everything was... We built and built and built and built over at Jim Piersack's garage. We built this beautiful, whatever it was, 77 Buick. And part of the reason I even started the rebuilding was the oil pressure light kept flickering. It took me another 10 years to figure out why. <laughs> the rebuilt engine, the oil light was still flickering. It turns out that Buicks put the oil pump in an aluminum timing cover. And the steel impeller for the oil pump would eventually carve out aluminum and the chamber would get too big and would lose oil pressure even though the engine was perfect. I learned that after it was too late. And J.C. Whitney would sell you an oil, a new timing cover and oil pressure would go right up. And I remember lamenting. And I said to one of my friends, and I spent part of a summer doing that. I said to one of my friends, I wasn't listening to God. And my friend looked at me like, why are you saying that? You have a car? This is what happens. See, I was supposed to, I was the preacher. I was supposed to know better. If I look back at it, I have fond memories of Bert Sisler and I doing that project together and his fellowship. He was the first convert, I remember, from 1983 at our old church. And we just late, well, lately went to his funeral. He lived to be 95. He's born 1923. He's an airline pilot, an engineer. In those time with Bert Sisler, I wouldn't trade for anything. And so the car didn't get good oil pressure. See, dear saints, I want you to know something. God intends you to enjoy your Christian liberty and your fellowship as we work together to decide what to do and just execute the plan. And what happens when it doesn't work out? God is still glorified. Whether God's glorified has to do with my attitude, not how the outcome of the project. Do you, do you understand that? It took me 30 years for that to start to sink in. Finally, in 2003, I wrote an article about it. I had a liberty to try to drive an old Buick. Eventually, I found out why the oil light kept coming on. <laughs> Could have saved a couple thousand bucks if I would have known that to start with. <laughs> I should have got a Chevy. Well, you're actually right. They had an internal oil pump that they didn't do that. I like Buicks. What's wrong with me? I still like them. I got a Buick. 
Let me cite from the article that I'm telling you about. This is a quote from the issues 3075. There's a practical problem when God's providential will is not seen as a valid category for understanding God's work in human history. What happens is that rather than watching God's providential will being displayed as history unfolds, many try to find subjective revelations to make known now what is secret because of not yet being not of being yet future. The idea I continue is that there is a future that is envisioned by God but would only be actualized if we make the right decisions. Thus, many other matters, I'm saying, that do not fall into the category of God's moral law or revealed will are considered nevertheless necessary to be known for God's will to be done. Then I make this claim. I will show that believing like this impinges upon Christian liberty. CIC issue 75. Christian liberty is a valuable and important part of our lives. And don't feel guilty for making valid decisions that aren't contrary to God's moral law, nor offensive to Jew, nor Greek, nor the Church of God. I don't know of anybody who was offended that I got an old Buick and tried to fix it, except for me. <laughs> Chevy guy, yeah, right. I know. Should have got a Chevy. But I like Buicks. Anyhow, dear ones, it took me 20 years for these categories to start making sense. And the five years I spent in that commune trying to live according to Revelation, I, I remember when I got out of that, I said, when we went in, interest rates on trying to buy a home were 10%. When we got out, they were 16%. Nobody could buy a home. People that sold their houses and joined that group sold their houses for 30000 gave the money to the group when they left. I, we didn't have a house, so we weren't out of anything. When they left, the same house was 70000 They couldn't afford to buy it back, no matter what job they got. There were a lot of consequences. But listening to false teaching is a transgression of God's moral law. We're supposed to believe the truth, not err. Let's go to another slide here. I want to prove that Christian liberty is a biblical idea. Galatians 2, 4 and 5. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. Why? In order to bring us into bondage. Let me stop right there. That's in green up here. What are they doing? How do they bring us into bondage? By telling us that God's moral law revealed in Scripture isn't enough. That the gospel isn't enough. They were saying, you believe the gospel... You're following Christ and his apostles, but it's not enough. You have to be circumcised. That's what was going on in Galatia. You have to follow the food laws. 
They're taking away your liberty. Dear saints, false teaching always takes away your liberty because it creates false categories. The truth sets you free. False teaching impinges on your liberty in Christ. They sneak in claiming to be true Christians and to spy out your liberty and take it away. Now you don't have it. But Paul said we do not yield to them in subjection to the... Excuse me. We do not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. The false teachers had determined that Titus had to be circumcised. Paul wouldn't do it. Paul considered attacks against Christian liberty to be attacks against the gospel itself. We have everything that pertains to life and godliness. Let me quote Dr. Timothy George, his commentary in Galatians. He's he's commenting on sneaked in. Says George, Satan still continues to worm his way into churches and institutions founded by godly purposes, for godly purposes, in order to subvert them from within step by step. Here's what George says in his commentary. A new chapel was recently dedicated at a theological school, an institution founded by a major evangelical denomination for the purpose of training ministers of the gospel. George continues, since it was decided they would be too chauvinistic to adorn this worship space with Christian symbols, a nearby closet was partitioned which would make use of that common space, accoutrements of various world religions would make use of that common space. Excuse me. The spectrum of teaching from Buddhism, from New Age, and Christianity dutifully apportioned its spot merely as one acceptable tradition. In other words, Buddhism, New Age, Taoism, Islam, anything you want. It all has to be there. We don't want to offend anybody by being narrowly Christian. That's what George is saying. They sneak in. So you can't... Well, I, I have, I'm working on a sermon, but when I was in seminary, they sneaked in and said, if you use the very terminology the Bible do, does, you're sexist. And thou shalt not use any generic pronoun ever. And if you just say he, in a generic sense, you shall receive an F on your paper. That was the law of God. False brethren sneaked in to spy out our liberty in Christ. They had some other message. And so then all suddenly all of our Bibles, whatever translation we had, were sexist. They eventually came out with a neutered Bible. 
let me say again from George, at no particular time, says George, in the long history of that institution, was the original commitment to historic Christian Orthodox officially repudiated or abandoned. Only incrementally, George continues, did that institution and many others lose touch with the roots that gave birth to and nurtured a lively faith for many generations. But step by step, says George, the Lord of hosts was replaced by a user-friendly, equal-opportunity God. Unquote. I've shared with our daughter Jessica some research I'm doing for some sermons I'll be preaching. It's unbelievable. It got worse since I was in seminary. Now they're not satisfied with the God of the Bible. They want a goddess. Yes, they want a female deity. And there are people promoting that big time. Even at Bethel? At Bethel? I don't know because I'm not there. But I know I heard speakers who were part of the Evangelical Women's Caucus, one of whom latest book is The Feminine God. I sent the link to Jessica so you can verify it. That's what the Starbucks logo is, the Astra. Astra. Yeah. Astra. <laughs> Dear Saints, God has given us liberty within boundaries. The boundaries of God's moral law revealed in the Bible. I want to make a strong claim. The boundaries that God drew actually give us more liberty. Why? Because we're not in bondage to sin. We're not in bondage to things that will lead us to hell. We're not allowing the world to define who God is. And when we know the true God and honor Him, and stay within his boundaries, we have liberty. Yes, you could buy a Chevy or a Buick. Or even a Ford. Or even a Chrysler. <laughs> Honda. Okay, well the point is, don't worry. Dear dear saints, I get this. Teaching God's moral law enhances Christian liberty. Because like Adam before the fall had the liberty to eat every tree in the garden and after the fall, he still had liberty, but it was constrained by the thistles. And he had to sweat. He had to keep pulling out weeds and trying to get something edible to grow. So that's, but we still have liberty. Don't let anyone sneak in and spy out the liberty that you have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for caring about us and giving us these magnificent promises. And may we honor your boundaries and your moral law and give us grace to live accordingly, but let us do so so that we give no offense to Jew nor Greek nor the Church of God nor 
sneak in and spy out anyone's liberty, but that we could love one another and proceed by your grace. Pray now that as we have the worship service that you'd be with us and teach us and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.